Hello and welcome to Small Screen Science, the podcast where we take a look at some of the science behind our favourite TV shows. I'm Karen. I'm Emma and this week's episode is called Bloodsucking Science because we are exploring the science behind or surrounding the legendary vampire myth, Dracula. Karen, you got stuck into the BBC adaptation of Dracula earlier this year. What did you think? I actually quite enjoyed it. I thought it was a really different approach, which given the writers, I mean, they're the writers of Sherlock, so you'd expect it to be a little bit different. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but my my favourite part, I think, was or my favourite character within it was uh, Agatha Van Helsing. Mm. I thought that was a really interesting approach to take her as a nun uh, and to actually have her as a woman because in the in the book she's obviously a man. And I think my favourite scene was the one where Dracula appeared at the nunnery. Um, oh, where he needed to be invited across the threshold. Exactly, and yes. he was he was dressed as a wolf. And when I say dressed as a wolf, properly dressed as a wolf, that was a little bit grim and a little bit disgusting when he actually took the wolf skin off. He peels himself out of it. Yeah, Mm. which is a little bit disgusting. Um, But that whole scene was very engaging and she was just really sassy. She's brilliant. She's a strong, sassy lady. Yeah, she was fantastic. Yeah, Dolly Wells, that was the actress, and she's just brilliant. I really enjoyed her part, yeah. And um, um, the main actor as well, Clive Bang, he's considered a bit of a dish, isn't he? He is, which in itself is very interesting because um, in the book, uh, Dracula is actually very old and gnarled. Um, oh. and, and they started the programme off with him looking like that, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, he was hideous. Episode. Exactly. I'd read all these headlines about this like um, this heartthrob would be playing Dracula and then the first five minutes I was like, oh, good God. <laughs> Where's the heartthrob? <laughs> he, was, he was awful. <laughs> and I just love the way he changed slowly over time. Yeah. I thought that was really clever. Um, and actually that, that harks back to the very early days of TV and, well, in film in those days, in mm. the 1930s. And there was an actor called Bella Lugosi and he actually played this kind of sexy suave sophisticated gentleman version and since then most tv and film you know portrayals of dracula have followed that original presentation oh really the day. it's interesting isn't it how one person's adaptation of a character can really kind of inform everything else that happens afterwards and i have to admit i did really enjoy the season um but it made me jump way more than i was expecting it to and i really hate knowing that i'm going to be made jump yeah, and I think that's the problem with me and horror films generally is um, I'm a dreadful jumper. And even if I can predict that it's going to happen, you know those scenes, you know, like in um, mm. in those um, ones where you've got a group of people in a house and they all say, let's all separate out and look. And you're like, no, don't, don't split up, do that. Don't sake. split up because you know something's going to happen and you can see someone going along a corridor. There's a jump scare coming. There's a jump scare coming. There's a jump scare coming. But anyway. Hate it. Mm. Totally not my genre. No. But we'll be talking a little bit more about horror and scary stories uh, later on in the episode. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing to look out for during the episode is our Dracula vernacular. Oh, very nicely done. Oh, well done. (laughs) So we'll be seamlessly slotting in as many kind of vampire cliches and, and Dracula terms as we can. Yeah, so listen out for those. So let's start by quickly having a chat about the origins of Dracula, because he's he's not actually new to our screens with this series, as you've said. In fact, the legend of Count Dracula predates screens entirely. Um, Bram Stoker based the main character of his 1897 no- novel Dracula on this ancient Romanian folklore that was happening in an area of Romania called Transylvania. Uh, stop. 
You didn't say Transylvania correctly. Didn't I? No. You have to say Transylvania. Oh. Oh, that was a bit seductive. <laughs> Where have you got that from? I think it's the law, I think. Yeah. It's the law? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Well, I've broken the law there. <laughs> I'm going to keep saying Transylvania. I don't oh, think okay. I can roll my R's quite, <laughs> quite as you did. So, back to Transylvania. Was that better? That was better. That was yeah. better. Yeah. Um, so, there was a, a man named Vlad the Impaler back in the day who did rule over an area of Romania um, and he was a particularly nasty ruler and he was known for impaling his victims or people that disobeyed him on spikes in fields. That was his thing. Nice. And he actually was kind of the inspiration at the very least for the name of Count Dracula. Um, But there's nothing actually to suggest in history that he was, although he was a fairly nasty chap, he wasn't drinking blood. He didn't need to drink blood to survive. You know, he couldn't turn into a bat. He wasn't scared of sunlight, anything like that. Nor was he even ever found to have been to Bran Castle, the one place in Transylvania where everyone goes on kind of Dracula tours. Isn't that interesting? I didn't realise that, yeah. But Bram Stoker based his idea of Dracula's castle on Bran Castle. Mm -hmm. So that's why everyone goes. So that's the classic castle on the edge of a, a cliff a up on... A cliff top, yeah. yeah. Quite beautiful, but mm. I can definitely see being quite a spooky place. It was one... It's a really clever novel in that he's pulled together all of this folklore around vampirism mm. and then, you know, latched it onto this individual who is famous for impaling people and then this particular building within the area and just pulled all that together to create the novel. Absolutely. And now the area of Transylvania gets heaps of tourism of people who are interested uh, in in Dracula and the stories. Hmm. And of course, there are lots of other vampire cliches around. So and and lots of inconsistencies and consistencies and interpretations of what a vampire actually is. Um, But all of them talk about vampires sucking blood and particularly sucking blood of virginal young women. And now, although this isn't a human trait... Well, (laughs) it does actually still happen elsewhere in nature so we're going to kick off this episode by talking about vampire bats yes and these are tiny tiny bats which are common across latin america and they do exactly what it says in their name they come out at night and they drink blood so to find out more about these mythical sounding but very real creatures we got in touch with daniel schreiker uh, from the university of glasgow now he is a vampire bat expert so of course we asked him first of all how do these creatures hunt in the dark so they, they have a variety of different sensors that they use to find prey, and the, these sensors work at different scales. So kind of figuring out where prey are, like from where they fly out at the beginning of the night to where they find the prey, I think for a lot of that, they must rely on memory, maybe a little bit of smell, um, just to kind of know where to start looking. Once they get into the vicinity of animals that they want to feed on, they can use some pretty amazing senses. Uh, one of those is the ability to recognize breathing sounds. So they can tell if an animal is really deep in sleep by the way that it's breathing. So obviously, if you're going to try to feed on an animal that's uh, and drink its blood, it's much easier if that animal is really knocked out and asleep. And also, there's even some reports that they can use those breathing sounds to recognize individual animals. So they can go back to the same animal night after night, which also makes a lot of sense if you're a vampire bat, because then you just have to sort of lift off the scab that you fed on the night before and continue drinking. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to making a new wound, uh, one of the key challenges is probably figuring out where on the animal to bite. And so these bats have some pretty amazing heat sensing organs that allow them to figure out wh- what's the warmest place on the animal's body because that's where the blood is flowing closest to 
uh, to the skin. So whereabouts on the body would a, a vampire bat normally feed? It sort of depends on the animal that they're feeding on. When it comes to things like cattle, we often see bites on the neck or ears or on the hooves. In humans, uh, because humans are also bitten by these bats occasionally, uh, you'll see often bites on the fingers or toes or on the head. So we're just going to pause the interview right there. If you want to see what a vampire bat looks like, head on over to our Instagram account. We've got a picture up there of, of one and they're very small. So in films, actually, instead of using vampire bats for these scenes, they actually use fruit bats, which are much larger bats, ah. but clearly feed on fruit. And while you're there, you can also see a picture of what a real vampire bat bite looks like on a human. Um, so they don't tend to go for our necks, do they? So, in fact, I'm afraid it's a picture of someone's foot. Yes. And you can see a little little nibble on the toe. So that's probably the closest you might actually get to seeing a real vampire bite, I think. Yeah, because it's actually very, very small. It's only about five millimetres across, but it's pretty grim viewing. Um, should we get back to the science now? Yeah, I think we should. So do you think there are any other potential parallels between vampire bats and, the, and you know, the myth of Dracula? Well, I mean, the the obvious one that comes to my mind is um, is rabies. Because um, rabies is a disease which could potentially cause people to be aggressive and attacking other people. Uh, that's mm-hmm. one of the ways that rabies transmits is by changing the behavior of its host to make it more aggressive. So there's potentially a, a link there. However, I don't think that really rabies is the origin of Dracula myths simply because the Dracula myths and bat rabies are happening on different continents. So I think Mm -hmm. that the Dracula myth is more of an Eastern European thing and there's no vampire bats in Eastern Europe. So I think that's sort of a coincidence that these things just happen to uh, have uh, an association in in that way that they're both sort of humans biting other people or humans wanting to bite other people but for (laughs) entirely different reasons. Um, when mosquitoes bite um, an organism, they'll they'll release an anticoagulant. So, do vampire bats work in the same way? Yes, uh, exactly the same way. They they have a, a different kind of anticoagulant. Uh, in this case, it's actually called Draculin. And, <laughs> oh, amazing! <laughs> yeah. And so they're not really injecting it into the their victim, but rather the way that these bats bite is they have these tiny triangular teeth. Uh, which are razor sharp. And so they use those teeth to dig out a tiny hole of about five millimeters. And then the blood starts flowing from that. And then they're just basically lapping up the blood. So they're not really using any sort of suction the way a mosquito might, uh, but rather they're lapping up the blood. And as they lick that wound, then they're kind of constantly coating it with more saliva. And so that saliva contains the anticoagulant, which keeps the blood flowing. One of the classic lines is, you know, I want to suck your blood, isn't yes, it? That's but right. Daniel's just debunked that myth. Vampire bats actually just lap at your blood. They yeah. lick, they don't they don't actually suck. Yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. So how do you how do we survive on blood? Yeah, because blood's mostly, you know, it's mostly liquid, it's mostly plasma. It's got it has got protein in it, a little bit of carbohydrate, but very few, you know, vitamins and minerals. Now, Daniel said that there are actually a lot of other things going on in the guts of, of bats. So In the same way that we have a symbiotic relationship with our own gut microbiome, the bacteria in the bat's stomach and in their intestines that are actually able to break down and digest blood uh, can turn them into useful components and also them themselves produce nutrients to contribute to the bat. Yeah, so a little bit like in humans where we've got bacteria in our guts that produce vitamin K, which coincidentally is used in blood clotting. Ah. Now, Dracula tends to keep people alive to, to consistently drink their blood, but there must be a safe limit then as to how much blood that we can lose. 
Yeah, I mean, a healthy human actually contains about five litres of blood. And if you are someone who goes and donates blood, you're probably donating about a tenth of that oh, okay. full volume of the blood. And you'll know that that makes you feel a little bit dizzy. Pass me the biscuits. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and actually what happens inside the body is that the, the blood vessels will constrict slightly in order to increase the blood pressure. Your heart rate might increase slightly as well oh, okay. to, to compensate. Obviously, you'll feel thirsty. So you'll drink you know more water to replace that water that's been lost. But the big issue is the red blood cells. Mm. You know, So what happens is uh, your kidneys will detect the fact that the oxygen levels in the blood have dropped. And they will cause the bone marrow to then produce more red blood cells in order to replace those that are lost. And quite quickly, you'll actually return back to normal. Ah. Um, but if you lose 40% of your blood, that's kind of the tipping point. So a 40% loss um, can lead to stage four shock and can actually be life-threatening. Um, your cardiac input changes and the blood is redistributed from you know places like the digestive system and your muscles to your brain to try and keep you alive. So you become incredibly pale and weak, uh, very run down and tend to look very, very tired. Mm. So if you think about it in detail, Dracula traditionally goes for young females, um, but actually should be going for younger fit males because they, they're likely to have, firstly, more blood within mm. the system because they're larger volume, but also they're less like, much less likely to be anemic than women. Ah, yes, of course. Yeah. We're going through cyclical blood loss yes, of our absolutely. own. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind anybody don't stealing need, any of it. Don't need Dracula to help us out. But he also shouldn't go for people who drink a lot of tea. So maybe as British, maybe we're, we're okay on that one. And that's because the tannins in the tea can prevent us absorbing as much iron as we otherwise would. So actually we're more of a tendency to be anemic as well. Yeah, because that, that iron is required for the haemoglobin, which is inside the red blood cells. Excuse me while I just slurp my tea right now to prevent <laughs> Dracula. <laughs> Get those tannins in me. Yeah. <laughs> So how many bats then do you think it would take to fully drain our blood? Well, as we said earlier, vampire bats are incredibly small mm. and, and their stomach volume is probably only about 20 millilitres of blood. Oh, right. So if you take the fact that, you know, a healthy person maybe have five litres of blood, it's going to take about 250 vampire bats to be feeding at, at the same time in order to drain all of your blood. That's a lot of bats. It is a lot of bats. But as we've said, you know, you only need to lose about 40% of your blood for it to become a particular issue. So if we're thinking about that volume of blood loss, we're talking about 100 vampire bats. That's still quite a lot. I think still so. Still quite a lot of bats. Now, Daniel has actually been part of a team who's been using the blood that's inside a bat's stomach for research. So, of course, we had to ask him about this. Absolutely. Um, so there's been quite a bit of research looking at the blood inside the stomach of bats and, be, and identifying the species on which the, the bat is actually fed. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so... We can put these uh, flexible plastic needle down the vampire bat's throat and suction out just a tiny bit of its blood meal. So that's how we steal the bat's blood meal. From there, there are some complicated genetic techniques called metabarcoding, which basically allows us to amplify and get the, the DNA sequence of a particular part of uh, the DNA that's present in that blood meal. And that can be compared to databases, which tell us what animals the bats are feeding on. So typically the bats will feed on cattle or other domestic livestock when they're around. Uh, cattle seem to be preferred, but you can see them feeding also on horses, donkeys, pigs. They're quite adaptable. In areas where there's not so much livestock, uh, things get a bit more interesting. You can find 
populations of vampire bats that specialize on sea lions or along the, the Pacific coast of South America. But it's, it's difficult to catch bats and actually get those samples in those contexts to be able to know the whole diversity of animals that they might be feeding on. And there, there are communities in the Amazon where people are bitten every night by these bats. I mean, we, the way we go and catch the bats in these communities is we ask around who's getting bitten and we set up a net outside their house. I mean, that's, that's how frequent it is that the bat is entering in the house and feeding on a child at night. It's a public health risk on lots of different levels because we don't know all the different pathogens that the bats might be transmitting. And then, of course, you just have the constant wound, wounding and bleeding from the anticoagulants. You have the risk of secondary infections. Um, so He mentions the public health risk there. Now, yeah. there's just one little fun fact that I really need to sneak in right here. Okay. The Latin American governments, a lot of them are using a certain type of gel pesticide to try and control these bat populations. Guess what the component is called? Go for it, tell me. Vampiricide. Oh my goodness. <laughs> How brilliant is that? Yeah. Oh, I love it. Now, okay, people in history were always kind of scared of Dracula hunting them in the night. Yeah. And people in these communities that Daniel's mentioned in the Amazon are also scared of vampire bats coming and hunting and feeding on them in the night. So this is kind of one of the closest ways, I think, that we can get to a, a real version of this legend in, in real life. But there are also some very present real modern illnesses that could be mistaken for or bear some resemblance to vampirism as well, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. And um, one of the maybe classic examples that was mentioned earlier, actually, by Daniel is rabies, um, because that would cause something like foaming at the mouth. It makes you sensitive to light and you can become uncomfortable with strong odours as well. So that may be mistaken for vampirism. Uh A second one is TB, because uh, if you were to catch TB, um, you're likely to be coughing up blood. And of course, the assumption is that in order to be coughing up the blood, you must have drank the blood in the first oh, place, see. as opposed to being, you know, blood that you, is blood. actually building up in your lungs. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and also TB rapidly spreads from person to person, which can also help, you know, help with the myth of the vampire. Mm. Um, perhaps maybe the strongest, though, in terms of relationship between vampirism and actual diseases is porphyria. Um, And this causes uh, irregularities in the production of heme, which is needed to produce hemoglobin for, you know, for your red blood cells. And um, if you if you've got this condition, then it means you're very sensitive to light. It actually gets blisters on your skin. Um, The teeth can also become more prominent because the gums recede. And this means the incisors can become very prominent. Ah. So you can see how this might be mistaken for vampirism. I can. So let's bring it back to TV and film. We are called small screen science. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Now, the next voice you're going to hear, you might actually recognise. Yes, because we spoke to him on our Love Island episode when we were talking about reality TV. So we're going to bring back a psychologist, Dr. Brendan Rooney from UCD in Ireland. And we're going to quiz him a little bit about scary stories. So why are vampires popular in books and TV shows and films? One of the things about vampires that contributes to their pervasiveness in culture is around that there's multiple dimensions to them. So there's different types of, of, of vampires and they have different motivations, different ones look differently. Um, they have kind of various different weaknesses that depending on the genre or the, the film... Um, and that creates the opportunity for different sorts of lore, different stories, different connections. And then different people can latch on to the different things 
so in short there there are multiple dimensions and the kind of evidence of their pervasiveness in culture can be seen from something like how there's the count in sesame street and then there's representations of vampires in classic highbrow literature or in modern teen pop culture so these various types of vampires are pervasive in in kind of all parts of life and we can add to them or or make them our own so why is it that that we as audiences either like or hate horror as a genre so in my lab we often take a functional perspective with all these sorts of questions and so we're asking rather than what is it that we like or don't like about it it's what kind of function does it serve for us and broadly stories serve a function um to help us kind of learn about ourselves and about the world and by learn that can be how to regulate our own emotions and learn how we feel as well as learning in the more traditional sense so your question then is what is the function that horror serves for us in Mm. in line with that we can learn not just about general threats i mean learning about how to kill a vampire might not be very useful in real life but (laughs) implicit in that is the learning to do with how to calm ourselves down how to strategically escape from threats more broadly um and then how do you feel compassion for someone who's in danger and what do you do with those feelings Um, and then more broadly again like what are our values as a society and how do we learn about those so to do that successfully we want to run simulations or models in our mind we're doing it all the time stories are a great way to do that and then if, if they're kind of like functionally adaptive for us so that we we want to use stories that give us the most learning horror is perfect right it, that that's going to be the most beneficial to learn about these threats genres of films can be defined a lot of the time by the sorts of emotions that they evoke in a person and mm. horror might sound obvious that it evokes horror but it might be more kind of useful in in the media and entertainment psychology lab I work in to think about emotion of disgust and fear. So Karen, I am going to just jump in right here. Did you ever think about disgust playing like a big role in horror? I suppose in some aspects, yeah. I mean, if there's a lot of blood or if you've, you know, you're looking at body organs and things like that, it's definitely, definitely a level of disgust, yeah. Mm. So Bren told me about this study in America, which was interested in disgust and the function that it actually serves for us if we're feeling disgust. And they asked a lot of people what it was that disgusted them and to describe things that disgusted them. Mm -hmm. And generally their answers fell into three broad categories. The first being like animal products or bodily products, fluids, things like vomit. Oh yeah, because that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, we we would all feel we'd pull that face, you yeah. know, where you're pulling your nose the up. The one that we're doing right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> really, really grossed out. Yeah, uh, the second is kind of blood, gore, and like deformity to the human form. Yeah, yeah. and then the third is things like racism uh, and Nazis. Oh, of course. Yeah, no, you never really think about that, but yeah, that feeling is definitely discussed when you're seeing that on a film or TV. Yeah. yeah. So if we're asking why it is that we feel disgust, um, they actually argued that it's kind of to protect us from things. Right. So if we're looking at the first bracket, it is very useful for us to be disgusted by things like animal products or bodily products 
because they represent a threat to our hygiene, don't they? They can cause illness in us. Yeah, so if so we're disgusted by them, we distance ourselves. Yeah, so carrying bacteria or viruses, for example, that might infect us. Absolutely. And with the second one, it's interesting because they think that we're d- disgusted by kind of blood gore and human deformity because that represents a threat to everything we know as human. We like to believe that we are more than animal, we're more than just skin and bones. But by seeing us as skin and bones it kind of it takes away that human element to which we tend to cling yeah so that the kind of humanity yeah yeah it makes us feel very vulnerable mm. and then the last one things like nazis and racism it's we feel disgust for these things which are really against societal norms so it kind of stops us from stepping out into these things it it protects us as a society for everything that we kind of hold dear so a little bit like thinking about civilization mm. and if we step outside certain bounds then we're no longer civilized and because we're not sticking to those social norms yeah mm. so for us if we were to stick to our social norms we're much more likely to survive yeah which i thought was really cool i think that's really interesting um so how would this relate to vampires specifically good question so horror films like to tap into all three of these mm. and if we're looking specifically at vampires um you know vampires are seen drinking blood that's not normal. That's kind of gross. We don't like seeing blood. They're also seen that you know they're acting like animals. They're not acting like humans. They're stripping away that humanity of them. Um, and they're also not acting in a way that is good to one another. They're going against societal norms. They're killing people. So it, it, they do tick all of these boxes. They do really trigger these feelings of disgust, which are of course very heavily linked with fear within us. Yeah. Why is it that some people will really thrive on those feelings of disgust or fear and others will really back away from it and and avoid watching things like that? So then to answer that, I would say it's the extent to which you want to learn those sorts of things or that you Mm. want to experience those emotions. So one example of a person who watches so much horror film that they're not really freaked out by it or they're not scared so then they want to watch worse and worse and worse ones so that Mm. they can they can uh practice those feelings of fear and and be with them or the other person who doesn't watch any and can't even stand the thought of them could be terrified by a slightly dramatic scene on your primetime tv in the evening um so one reason is about the way they make us feel and how much we want to feel that way and what we can get from it. But what's also important to say is another big part of liking horror film is the identity that we build around that part of us. I'm the sort of person who likes horror film or I'm, I'm the sort of person who really doesn't like horror film. So there's a theory in psychology that was called the snuggle theory. And the idea was that couples in in their early stages of dating would like to go to horror films together so they could what the researcher said was they could buttress their gender roles <laughs> and so oh dear the idea was that women could be all afraid and men could be all protective and all now that was obviously in a time before we've moved past these traditional ideas of gender but within that theory i think there's something like I said, beyond gender that stands about how as an individual, whatever that may be, we can build our identity and communicate that to other people. Do you know what? Both times we've spoken to Bren, he's really made me realise how much we really do learn from entertainment. I always, I guess, considered or categorised film and TV as just something fun that you do to pass the time. You, But you actually 
there's such an amazing learning curve that's going on behind it. Yeah, I know. And so much psychology that we'd never really thought about. It's, it's really amazing. It's fascinating. Mm. I'm, you know, I'm just dead chuffed that he agreed to be in a second episode. Smooth. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm, uh, I'm bloody proud of that one. Too far? Yeah, maybe. I think you need to put a stake in it. Oh, there we go. Okay, well, speaking of putting stakes in things, talk to me about vampires in the Middle Ages. Yeah, actually, there's quite a lot of folklore about vampirism back in the Middle Ages in particular, you know, when the plague was around. Ah. Um, So you might get a situation, for example, where a husband dies of the plague, is buried. Um, The wife's going through emotional trauma and obviously feels like maybe she's seen the husband or felt the husband's presence maybe uh, in the house after his death. And she might report this to the village. And the village obviously will get quite anxious about this. They might feel that, well, you know, we've got a living dead situation here. Mm. So what they actually would do in those days is maybe go back and dig up the husband just to make sure he actually was dead. Gosh. And, and of course, in those times, you know, you wouldn't be using formaldehyde. You wouldn't be preserving the body in the same mm. way that you would do now. Um, so they would see changes that are happening in the body. So, for example, um, the hair might appear to have grown. The fingernails may have appeared to have grown during the during the decomposition process, which might make them think, you know, that he's still alive. Um, And also he might have foam or other bodily fluids coming out of his mouth, which again might suggest he'd been feeding. Um, So, of course, what they would do then is take a stake and place it through the heart just to make sure he's dead. And even there are examples in archaeology where they found plague victims who've got bricks in their mouths. So they're they're placed there to prevent them from feeding. And even being placed face down inside the coffin so that if they did choose to, you know, come alive again and start digging, they'd end up digging down rather than up, which is quite fascinating. Notoriously, the undead have no concept of gravity. (laughs) (laughs) So it would seem. (laughs) So, you know, short of digging up the dead and burying them upside down with stakes uh, in them, how do we actually protect ourselves from vampires then? You know, let's use science and channel our inner Van Helsing to keep us both safe. I see what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, um, back in, you can actually buy Victorian vampire hunting kits. Really? Yeah. If you do a quick search on the internet, you can find them quite easily. You know, they contain, you know, stakes and mallets and crosses and Bibles and things, all the pieces of kit that you need to protect yourself against a vampire. Oh, Buffy would be proud. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and of course, one of the other historic ways to allegedly get rid of vampires is to use garlic. Oh yeah, strings of garlic around the uh, around the door and the window to prevent him getting in. And you know, there is actually a little bit of science behind that one. Oh okay. So um, we all generally know that garlic uh, is quite good when it comes to things like if you've got a cold, it does have antimicrobial properties. Um, and through history, not just Romanians but a lot of ancient cultures have always believed that garlic had some kind of magical properties and actually it's because garlic has a compound within it called allicillin and this is released when the garlic is chopped or or crushed and it has very similar properties to penicillin so it can act actually in a medical way oh i see so uh that will be the final nail in the coffin for the old vampires oh well done well done We're doing pretty well on this one. I think we might be getting them all in. It'd be great. <laughs> so uh, before we go, though, I think it's it's worth us talking about, you know, probabilities of vampires being around. And it was a very interesting paper produced in 2006, which was uh, at the University of Central Florida. This better be good news, Karen. 
<laughs> oh, it is. Don't worry. Don't worry. Because uh, they said if the first vampire came into existence, say, around 1600, you know, we're thinking about the plague times and mm. all this kind of issues that are surrounding us. And let's say this vampire fed once a month. Okay. Which is not light snacking. Often. Yeah, a bit of light snacking. Um, and that every time the vampire fed, it converted the person into a vampire that it was feeding on. Okay, okay. Then that would mean that all of humanity would have been wiped out in two and a half years. Right. So a little reality check. We're no longer in the 1600s. No. <laughs> so we're all safe then. Is that what we're saying? Well, only if vampires convert all of their victims, I would say. Okay. All right, we'll linger on a little bit of uh, there. Well, I mean, thank goodness for the fact that they're not all, I assume, everywhere, because, you know, I'd be screwed. I have invited you into my home across the threshold of my office, so oh, if you yes. were a vampire, you're in. I am. You're looking at me quite sinister there. <laughs> let's, uh, let's wrap this episode up before you get snacky. <laughs> Listeners, how many of our vampire cliches did you manage to spot in the episode, Karen? Hit us with the roundup. Okay, so here's your Dracula vernacular. Oh, I love it. Avant to suck your blood. Yep. Final nail in your coffin. Tick. Van Helsing. Dead chuffed. Steak. Bloody. Buffy. Invited you in. Mm. Necks. Garlic. Incisors. Mm. Blood meal. And the two that we're adding to the list, Draculin and Vampiricide. Lovely. Sneaking in a bit of science in there. Yeah. So that's about all we've got time for today. So don't forget to subscribe on whichever podcast channel you prefer to listen to us on. Leave us a nice little five-star review. And of course, you can always contact us and keep up to date with what we're doing on Instagram. At Small Screen Sci Pod. Uh, we're on Twitter. At Small Screen Sci. We're on Facebook. Small Screen Science Podcast. And you can drop us an email. Small Screen Sci at gmail.com. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye.